Welcome to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. If you've been watching The Scuttlebutt for some time, you may have listened to a recent episode that we posted. Uh, that was a conversation with the Top Gun pilot, James Bartoloni. Bart was his call sign. For most of that episode, he talked about Top Gun, but by the end of it, he started to talk about the psychedelic healing that he went through using psychedelics. Uh, this caught the attention of a other recent guest on the, on the scuttlebutt, Adam Zafudo. Adam, you may remember if you've watched for some time, uh, was on after the fall of Afghanistan. He is an army veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. He had a lot of very candid and honest things to say uh, at that time. Um, Adam saw that conversation we had with Bart and over the last year has actually gone his own uh, journey of healing through psychedelics. So he wanted to come on and talk with us about that journey, a very open, again, candid and honest conversation about where he was at after the fall of Afghanistan and what the psychedelic healing sessions and the ceremonies uh, helped him uh, to himself. Um, I did very little post-editing here in this episode, and I must give a disclaimer before you listen that the thoughts and feelings and ideas that, that Adam shares are of his own. Uh, they are, do not express the thoughts and feelings uh, and opinions of the Veterans Breakfast Club. But I do feel that you need to hear all of uh, Adam's truth uh, from his own mouth, because I think all of those things have led him down this uh, path, this journey of healing. So if you have any questions uh, about this episode or about psychedelic healing through psychedelics, you can reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Several of the things that Adam suggests we will put into the description so you can do your own research. He is also a historian in his own right, and I think that he was able to do a lot of research into what psychedelic healing through psychedelics uh, would do for him. So if you're sort of finding this podcast uh, in your journey to say, these other modalities aren't working for me. What about psychedelics? I think this is a great conversation for you. And if you need more information, I can pass you on to Adam because he's very happy to talk with other veterans about his experience. Um, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. I do hope you enjoy this conversation. And again, um, this is a very candid and open conversation. So please keep that in mind as you listen. Um, I think Adam has an incredible story to share. Enjoy the show. Adam, thank you so much for joining us again on the Scuttlebutt. I uh, really appreciate your time coming on. I know we have a lot to get into here. Um, and I want to dive right in because I feel like there's a lot to go over. But I feel like the first question that I want to ask about psychedelic healing is, when did you decide, maybe from even the last time that we talked, people that maybe have watched the Scuttlebutt before uh, you came on soon after the, the fall of Kabul, um, had a lot to say about that. Um, uh, and I feel like there was a point there after that, that you found that you needed to heal. And how did you find yourself to psychedelic healing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, I think a big portion of it was what happened with the fall of Afghanistan, where we were told we weren't going to have helicopters leaving from the roof of the embassy. We weren't going to have a Saigon moment. Right. And we had it, you know, times 10 times a hundred. And it was in that, and it was, I had just become a father. My daughter was just born. And I think all of that, all of the fall of Afghanistan, having the inability to help these people who were begging us for help, begging us to try to get them out of the country, was such an emotional shock to me. It opened up a lot of these wounds that I had, I had thought I was kind of healed from. You know, I had worked with um, the military psychology clinic at Duquesne for quite some time 
on healing a lot of those wounds and saw a tremendous amount of healing. And it was like in those moments of watching that collapse happen, watching our administration just blatantly lie to us was these scars were being ripped open. And I was reliving all of these things and having to re-experience all of the trauma that is just, you know, it's everywhere in people who've been to Afghanistan. I think that it's something that you see how stark life is for these people and the the hell that we had just kind of sentenced a generation of young Afghan girls to. And part of that was I had just had a daughter and I was seeing hundreds of little passport photos of little Americans. You know, we must have had two dozen American citizens, little babies, it's a little a U.S. passport with their face. And I couldn't help but see my daughter's face in each and every one of these Afghan names with a little picture and going, my God, we just abandoned these people. We abandoned American citizens because they have an Afghan name or their parents are from Afghanistan. So we just abandoned them. And I was starting to see my, my daughter's face in all of them. I would go hold my daughter as she would cry as a little baby. And I would see the faces of these Afghan children in her. Mm-hmm. And I would just names just running through my head, running through my head of all of these names of all of these children that we had left behind. And it was this moment of also something I don't think is talked about a lot is one in four men um, experience some sort of postpartum. You know, it's being talked about a lot more with women. And I think part of that is, is they have this massive experience, this huge hormone dump and all of that. But we don't talk a lot about that. A lot of men actually have instances of postpartum. And I think everything that happened, Mm. Everything that happened in Afghanistan, having my baby, this constant like night after night after night trauma, trying to work, trying to do something, led me into a pretty deep depression. And I was, I was like very, very down in these moments. And I've, I've said it before: is I felt robbed of the first few months of my daughter's life. I was like, I, it was supposed to be filled with joy, and instead, I was just overcome with sadness and with despair. And with horror over like, what the hell did we just do? What did we just do over what? And that to me was these moments of like, oh my God. And then we, um, Thanksgiving kind of rolled around and we had a, um, we had a friend in to, to see us. Alex's cousin was in town and we got to talking about, you know, what happened in Afghanistan and how I was doing. I said, yeah, not well. You know, not well. These people are still there. We're still, you know, trying to figure out how we might be able to get somebody out. And we had had a um, a private security team go over to Tajikistan and try to build some rat lines to get people out of the country. And the the State Department pulled them out. And it was like, my God, like we're trying to do something here. And we're being stonewalled every single way by the government, by our government was stopping us from doing this. And I, um, had felt such a deep wound from that. And we got to talking about, you know, healing and and she had done her own work with psychedelics and then now actually leads psychedelic retreats Mm -hmm. and does psychedelic integration work with a uh, healing center out in California that actually provides psychedelic ceremonies. Was this the first you had heard about psychedelic healing? 
No, I had heard about it. I had heard about ayahuasca. I had heard about MDMA therapy for veterans, but it was especially the ayahuasca seemed like, oh, well, that's, I don't know, that's a little too far out there. I had felt like, oh, maybe, you know, if it presents itself to me. Mm-hmm. And one of the moments in my life of like, oh, you know, was right after when Afghanistan was collapsing, I was like very interested in that. Like, oh, I'm starting to feel it even before my daughter was born. Like, oh, these wounds are being ripped open. Like, area. And, and your daughter was born. I'm, I'm guessing you probably didn't sleep a whole bunch for. No, no. Yeah. Those first couple months, like, that's, I think, the thing that everybody tells you, like, oh, you're not going to sleep, but it's like, no it's one. A level of sleeplessness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that sleep me, deprivation oh, can wreck you. I, I it felt yeah. very reminiscent to my time in Iraq, where we were, you know, we were doing constant daily patrols through a city, coming back, sleeping for a couple of hours, and then doing either night patrols, dismounted night patrols in the city, or doing raids, mm-hmm. doing night raids into the city. And so we were sleeping like very sporadically and in parts and pieces. And I remember like those first days when they sent us back to Kirkuk as we were kind of heading down to Kuwait to get out of country like I slept for like two days straight mm-hmm. just because like we hadn't had any time to like fully decompress and sleep and that's what it felt very reminiscent of, of like you don't get a full eight hours you're maybe you get three hours here a couple hours there and it takes a massive toll on your mental health your physical health as well yep and so I had kind of heard about ayahuasca and i'd heard about mdma therapy but for the mdma stuff it was all rick doblin talking on joe rogan's program and a couple of other podcasts he had done where he talks about it and it's it's all couched around like the idea of treatment resistant ptsd right and that's something that like i don't have treatment resistant ptsd like i was diagnosed with ptsd when i got out went and did six years of counseling with the Duquesne psychology clinic Mm -hmm. and saw a tremendous amount of healing in that. So I wasn't treatment resistant, but there was always this thing of like, well, 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 maybe I know that healing is available. Mm -hmm. I know that I'm able to heal from these things. These wounds have now been ripped open again. And I, I don't particularly have another six years. Like I need to be the best father possible for my daughter. And so we can started. I ask, can, I ask, can I interrupt real quick yeah. and ask a question? So this is the first I've heard the term treatment resistant PTSD. It does that. Uh, let me clarify. Is is it a PTSD that is resistant to treatment, or is it uh, like a? I'm trying to understand that in the sense of yeah. it, it, any treatment, the it, it doesn't help, or you're just trying to find the right treatment that will yeah. treat it. So I think one of the things that uh, maybe we'll put a little context around it is mm-hmm. Rick Doblin at the, um, it's called the Multidisciplinary Association on Psychedelic Studies. Mm-hmm. Rick Doblin was a, is a psychologist and a psychiatrist who has at this point gotten the FDA to admit that MDMA is a breakthrough therapy for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Now, how did he do that? It got banned in the 80s, but MDMA was developed in 1910 by, I believe, Merrick Pharmaceuticals. And it was used as a psychotherapy aid. And it had this long history from 1910 until about 1980, when it kind of broke out of the psychotherapy world and made itself into the club scene, into the drug scene, right? Mm -hmm. And so it got blacklisted by the government and the whole scare tactics of, oh, people are taking it and they're dying. Well, they were dying from dehydration. They weren't dying from... MDMA. They're dying from taking MDMA 
dancing in packed in in a club and not drinking any water and they overheat and they die. Hmm. People do that out in the desert. People go hiking and they die. We don't stop people from hiking, hiking. you know? Yeah. And so it had this long history of use as a psychotherapy aid. And then it gets just blacklisted by the government. And Rick Doblin had had experiences with MDMA. It had experiences with MDMA healing ceremonies and healing sessions and said like, hey, this is very wrong. And so he goes on this now, what, 40 some year crusade to get it legalized again and to get the government to admit this is a therapy. And so his initial start was after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He said, hey, you're sending back a generation of veterans with PTSD, and some of them, nothing works. Some of them saw something, experienced something that was so traumatic that they're completely incapable of healing from any other modality that we have. Counseling's not working. Antidepressants aren't working. Antipsychotics aren't working. Outdoor exposure therapy isn't working. Nothing is working. Let me try this. Let me try this. And so he had his phase one study and they saw tremendous results, something like a 96. They did like a dozen veterans with treatment resistant PTSD. And they saw like a 90 something percent reduction in symptoms. Mm -hmm. And then something like 80 plus percent of them no longer qualified for a diagnosis of PTSD. I mean, tell me another therapy, tell me another drug out there that has any sort of any sort of statistics like that. I think the only one, and maybe this is if people that have been listening to the Scuttlebutt for a while, we talked about the um, injection straight into yes. the, uh, yeah, like that one has been tested lately at the Stella, yeah. uh, I think it's called the Stella Center. Um, I'll add that if need Stellar be. But, ganglion block. The, yeah, the, yeah, right. So that might be near that. I know that for those yeah. that it works, it's really a high percentage of, of veterans who I have a, if it works. I have yeah. a friend who did one of those Stellar ganglion blocks and said, his experience to me was this experience of like, I went from being in walking down a crowded street in New York City with car horns blaring and people all around me to I'm walking through the woods and it is perfectly calm and quiet. Like mm-hmm. that much of a, a just, wow, yeah. you know? And so those are these new therapies that we're seeing. And totally. so- Rick Doblin then went on to open up the phase two trial to also include women who had been victims of sexual assault and rape and had PTSD from this. And what do you know? Exact same results. Yeah. And they open it up to their big phase three trial with, you know, a thousand plus veterans. What do you know? Exact same results. And the way that they're kind of, um, they're, their process worked is you have three MDMA sessions and then prior to, and then after each session, you have integration work. So where you're working with a counselor or somebody to help integrate these lessons and these, these things that you've seen, these lessons learned, how do you integrate that into your life now? Because that's the real important part about psychedelics is I think in America, we look for um, the pill, the cure, go ahead and turn your TV on. And what is every other commercial? Mm-hmm. It's some pharmaceutical company selling you some drug that you don't need for a thing that you don't have, yeah. you know, but Hey, this, that's going to be the thing that fixes it. That's going to be the thing that fixes. Oh, that if I take that pill, I'll be fixed. Yeah. Right. And right. the answer is like, no, 
No, it's just going to cause something else. It's going to cause some down the road thing. And with psychedelics, you have to look at it in this way of like, oh, this is just a tool that helps open my heart up, mm-hmm. open my consciousness up to see the changes that are available. Mm-hmm. And then it's incumbent upon me to actually do the work, right? Right. And so that's the thing is, so the way Rick Dobbin was doing this was three MDMA sessions, integration work, well, intention setting before it. So you go in with what is your intention, right? What's your intention of going into this ceremony? And then you have your ceremony and then it's integrating. What are you integrating after this? How do you want to move forward with this new information you have? This expanded consciousness awareness that you have. How are you going to actually like integrate that and move that more forward in your life? And that's what I've been doing. Um, so let, what would what made that decision? What did you say like, I need that. Let's try that because this isn't working. It was seeing these wounds being reopened after Afghanistan and then talking with my wife's cousin Sloan about that she does this work, that she does the integration work. She can basically set this all up for me. And it was, I didn't need to do any more research. I I had heard enough podcasts and I had listened to enough things And it was this being presented to me in a way of like, this can help you. And I know it can help you Mm -hmm. because I've seen it help other people. Right. And I had seen all the Joe Rogan podcasts on it and was like, oh, okay. Well, you're also kind of a rare breed that you kind of already had done your homework and you had a bit of ease of access to it. So later on, let's talk about how we can get veterans who may not have done the homework, may not have heard about this, where they need to go and who they need to find. Um, But let's continue on with your journey. You you said, great, I'm going to do this. Uh, What was your first step? Uh, My first step was having a discussion. Well, I had initially been like, oh, you know what? I I think it's ayahuasca. I think I want to do ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, we can do ayahuasca. But there's a lot of healing that has to happen before you go do ayahuasca. Because if you go into an ayahuasca ceremony in a, you know, scatterbrained, post-traumatic stress kind of mindset, like you're not going to have the experience that you want, you know? And just like any, I had been this, um, had this idea when I was, I didn't want to do psychedelics when I got out of the military because I was like, I want to be in the right mind space for this. I want to have before I have any psychedelic experiences, I want to be in the right mind space. And it had always kind of been in the back of my mind. I had never done any psychedelics in high school or in college or in the military. Like it was just, it's all right. I get it. You guys want to do that's fine. Not for me. Not right now. Not yet. Not maybe that's not for me, but it's not right now. You Mm -hmm. know, I need to be in the correct mind space, correct. And a safe space in general. Yes. Yeah. And so talking with the, um, with the people at the, the healing center and talking with Sloan, and we kind of discussed like, well, ayahuasca journeying for you, yeah. But first, let's work on healing. And let's work on healing, you know, from these wounds that have been reopened. And also a lot of wounds that, like, maybe weren't fully closed. And I hadn't, I thought I had come to terms with. I had thought I had seen the, the healing in it. But it's like, uh, you know, after surgery, right? It's like, oh, yeah, feel my, like, yeah, feels great. But it's not completely healed. Yeah. You know, and that's what that Afghanistan experience was. Right. Was these wounds that I thought were healed really truly weren't. And when it got tested, you know, when it got tested, I learned that these wounds weren't healed. And there was still a lot of healing that needed to happen. Totally. 
So then we discussed that and we said, okay, well, I think the best path forward is to do an ayahuasca ceremony after you've done three MDMA ceremonies. And that's kind of the exact same um, protocol that Rick Doblin had been using minus the ayahuasca. Now you say MDMA ceremony, what does what that involve? So the way that um, Rick Doblin and they did theirs was since it was all very clinical, it was mm -hmm. all very medicalized. They, you do it in a, in a kind of a clinical, uh, you know, like a psychologist's office, but yeah. in a hospital, you're, you're laying back on a bed and there's a male and a female psychologist there and they're, they're helping talk you through it. This was more, I describe it as a shamanic ceremony, like a healing ceremony. Mm -hmm. So it was much less medicalized. And that spoke to me of like, I'm not interested in the medicalized treatment. I had like gone through the VA and seen like the, uh, they'll, they'll give you any drug you ask for. You don't really feel any better. And so for me, it was like, I don't want a medicalized healing. I, mm -hmm. I want to look at this as a spiritual healing. And so that was kind of what we decided on is three MDMA ceremonies and then an ayahuasca ceremony um, down the line. And so, uh, yeah. So ceremony is just kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's just a, a ceremony where you you go into that ceremony and you you enter this ceremony with like, what is your intention, right? What, what was what, yours? My, I had had all of these ideas, right? Especially my first one, like, oh, I, I have to make it so big and so meaningful. Like, and I had like struggled with, well, what am I going to make my intention? And, blah, blah, blah. and when I got there, it just honestly felt like, oh, the first step is just to accept a healing path, accept a healing journey, right? And so I just set my intention on, I'm going to accept a healing journey yeah. in my life. And that became my intention for that ceremony. And then um, prior to taking the, the MDMA, we did some, um, some like meditative breath work where you're kind of, breathing from your diaphragm where mm -hmm. like we i think breathe a lot like with our chest but we do you can actually breathe a lot with your diaphragm and you can get into a very good rhythm of like just exercising your diaphragm mm -hmm. and so what we did is for about an hour we did this kind of just breathing in a very like kind of an like um elevated breathing pattern of rhythmic and yeah, yeah very rhythmic. sort of yeah very I, I took yoga i did i practiced yoga for quite a number of years and that you know there's a different way of breathing through yes. that that yeah. that drops you into your center a bit more yeah yeah connects so, you it like connects you roots you yeah yeah and so about every 15 minutes during this breathing work the uh the you know the guide for my ceremony is a wonderful man a good friend named attila and so every 15 minutes, he would have me just yell and try to match the same kind of tone, like, ah, that he was yelling at mm -hmm. and try to match that. And then slamming my arms and legs onto this mattress I was laying on hmm. right now to set the scene a little bit, we're in a, a beautiful, at a beautiful house, kind of overlooking uh, Monterey Bay, hmm. Santa Cruz, California. And uh, they have a little little healing room they built off the top of their driveway with this beautiful glass windows looking out over Monterey Bay. And it's like, what a, it's like a very beautiful place to be having this experience. Yeah. And so you're laying there and you're, ah, 
yeah. And you do that for about two minutes. And as you kind of like go back into your breathing, you can start to get visions and you can start to see things like in you're under a blindfold and you have your eyes closed. But when you're and what that is like the, the physiology of that is you're like you're increasing the levels of oxygen and increasing the levels of CO2 in your blood and that ah, you're increasing CO2 levels. And it helps to like you can listen, I got visions before even doing MDMA. Yeah. Through, through using those techniques and you start to see these like just just they start to come into focus pictures and visions right so we did that for about an hour and then we go and drink some water and sit down and discuss like okay what is the the intention i want to have for this ceremony and that's where i decided like oh, i want to accept a a healing journey yeah and then um kind of discussed with me like the the options you can have the the two mdma pills and then like it, what is that like is, uh, and correct me if i'm wrong yeah, sure. is that like acid or what what is mdma mdma is a chemical compound that um it's doesn't have the visual effects of lsd or of psilocybin okay. right? right high dose psilocybin lsd you'll see visions in your in your eyes Whereas how MDMA works is it causes a massive outpouring of dopamine, oh, right? Okay. Yeah. It causes this massive outpouring of dopamine and of serotonin in your, and in, instead of things like um, psychedelics, like psilocybin, magic mushrooms, it is like one or two molecules off of serotonin, right? Mm -hmm. So your body sees it and goes, oh, click, put that right into the serotonin receptors, click, 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 everything starts working. And then it starts having its effect. Whereas MDMA works by having like causing your brain to have an outflow of all of these chemicals, mm -hmm. dopamine, serotonin start pouring out and that your brain keeps creating it. Oh, wow, wow. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, a different experience than something like LSD or, or psilocybin. I think that's a good important thing to, to understand, especially for veterans who may be looking into this yeah. and may not understand what that is. Like, yeah. how is this different from like, psychedelics that i hear yes. about on, traditional you know, psychedelics I, of right yeah, of yeah. the the vietnam age of these guys were doing acid and, and stuff mm -hmm. like that it's like it's different and also i think before we yeah, talk about like my journey is to, to talk a little bit about the like what are the actual physiological effects of something like mdma on the body and on the brain and one of the things that mdma does and it becomes very apparent once you're aware of what this is doing you can see it much more clearly of like oh I get it is MDMA actually shuts down the fear centers of your brain. So it shuts down that little lizard portion of your brain and the amygdala that is like, be afraid, be terrified, protect yourself, protect your ego. Right. Yeah. And at like the psychological levels, you can try to understand that and you can try to understand what it would be like to not have fear. But I don't believe that that's particularly available to the average human being who hasn't done a tremendous amount of meditative work or of yoga or things like that. Yeah. And so MDMA actually works on shutting down the fear centers of your brain. So you fit, you like psychologically cannot like process fear. Hmm. So when they, people talk about like your higher self, you know, yeah. in, um, uh, you know, in Quaker theology, they call it like, the inward light, mm -hmm. you know, that, 
that spiritual higher self, you know, in, in like uh, Buddhism in a, in it's described, I believe it's called the Atman, right? Mm -hmm. You're like higher self. Yeah. And it's that higher self that's not being acted upon by your amygdala. Mm -hmm. And that's a like very characteristic thing inside of PTSD is an overactive amygdala. Your brain is constantly processing everything as fear. Right. Because of the experiences, that's a PTSD is a normal human response to abnormal circumstances. And it's been conditioned over time to just be like, and that's what that stellate ganglion shot is all about too. That's, that's where I was making the connection there of like, how how is psychedelic healing also shutting down the fight or flight yeah. to yeah. help you to think more clearly and feel more calm? Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in that you have this, this, your brain, the brain of somebody with who, I, I don't particularly like, even agree with the post-traumatic stress disorder. And I heard somebody once say like, you know, PTSD is a disease. And once you have it, you have it. It's there forever. And like, I don't agree with that. I do not agree with that, that it is a forever diagnosis. I believe that just like many things, you can heal from it. You have to be able to see inside of like, well, what are the things that are actually helping me? For yeah. me, I, you know, I took uh, SSRIs when I got out of the army and for like three weeks and was like, oh, this is not helping. Mm -hmm. Everything felt flat and everything felt gray and there was no ups and there was no downs. Mm -hmm. Ah, well, I know what feeling good feels like. I know what feeling bad feels like. Mm -hmm. This is just, I'd rather not do that. And so I stopped taking those yeah. very quickly. And I know that some people have seen a lot of benefit from that. I personally, they, they were not, they were not for me. Right. And I think so, that viewing it through that lens of like, oh, my brain conditioned itself to be very wary and to be very fearful because of experiences that I had mm -hmm. in Iraq, experiences that I had in Afghanistan, right? It was a conditioned response to abnormal circumstances. Totally. And that's the, uh, the part of your brain that for an infantryman who's been in combat, when you hear something like a boom, you immediately go into like the, the crowd. Ducking, duck and cover and... yeah. And that's a conditioned response. Same mm -hmm. way that you, when you hear a round snap over your head, oh shit, you know? Yeah. Your, your body conditions itself for survival. Well, I exist in a situation in a world now where it's shot. I don't have to particularly worry about, you know, survival. That's right. And that was something that for me, like when I got out of the army and I was going to school at Duquesne, like I would walk out of class and listen, it sounds crazy, but I would look for snipers. As you look up at the rooftops, and you look for people and you look, is there somebody watching me? Is there somebody on a radio? Yeah. You know, but that's a conditioned response to having totally. been in urban combat. Right. You know, having experienced urban combat, having experienced patrolling in a city, mm -hmm. having been ambushed inside of a city. Like those are the things that you start looking for. And it becomes a natural reaction, mm -hmm. even though I could tell myself in my brain, there's no snipers in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah. But right. It, it doesn't compute because that lizard part of your brain, at the very base of your brain, the amygdala, mm -hmm. right? One of the first thing that forms inside of your brain is telling you, watch out for snipers, buddy. Look out for that bag of trash on the road because it might blow up. Right. You know? Totally. Those are conditioned responses. Even though I know there's no IEDs on Route 28, I know that. Right. 
my brain tells me. The biggest me, bomb in Pittsburgh is the Pirates. So you don't have to worry about it. I'll be here all day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's a that's a thing, right? It's like the at the base of my brain, it was telling me, no, you need to be wary of IEDs and of snipers and of rock propel grenade, all these things. Yeah. You can you can, yeah, intellectually tell yourself that. Mm-hmm. But still your brain is going like, yeah, but still watch out. Right. You know? Okay. All right. All right. So you get to the point where they're like, okay, you could take these two pills. Yep. Or what's the other option? You can take the the two MDMA pills, and I believe it was a hundred and twenty milligrams. I believe two sixty milligram capsules. And then if you would like to go deeper, you can take a third, about an hour. And I've kind of always lived with the you know the virtues of I'm here for the full experience. Mm-hmm. That's part of kind of what sent me into the into the army and into the infantry was like. I'm going to college. I'm at IUP and a lot like Chris Taylor in the movie platoon. Like I wasn't learning anything, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And like, why should all the poor kids have to go off and fight and all the rich kids get to sit around and go to college? Like, no, I want the experience of going to war. And there's very few times in, you know, in American history where you can, you can join the military and be guaranteed to go see combat. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was like, that experience of combat is what what I was was seeking out and sought it out, went to Iraq and, you know, like a lot of young men, the experience of combat is so intense and it is so otherworldly and you live at the exact edge of being alive. You're, it's that razor's edge of being alive and being dead and you've never felt fully alive until you have almost died. You know, until you had that, like that, that just missed and you feel like that's what it is to be alive. And so I went back to Afghanistan for that, Mm -hmm. seeking out that adrenaline and that adventure. Right. Right. And the first time I got shot at in Afghanistan was like, that was not what I was interested in. Like, maybe, maybe we should have thought about that. (laughs) But it's that part of what now I was a sergeant and now I had men that were underneath me that I had to command and I was responsible for their lives. Mm-hmm. And having to think about telling my good friend Ella Cedeno's wife that he had been killed because I had made a decision to put a mortar here instead of put a mortar there yeah. was like, oh, fuck. That's a heavy weight to have to carry. It's a heavier burden that a sergeant carries in combat than as a rifleman just running around the streets of Iraq, you're just keeping yourself and your buddy alive, you know, do what you're told, right? As a sergeant, you have a much heavier weight of these men's lives. Justin Hunter and Ella Cedeno's wife were like, hey, they belong to me. Those are my guys. Those are my soldiers. I am responsible for them to the point I'm responsible whether or not they live or die. Yeah. You know, and that's a heavy weight to have to carry. Totally. A little bit different than that when it happens in the, the other way. And for them, it was their first experience of combat. Yeah, yeah. they're you know they're they're living the life as an infantryman in combat. Like, hey, just stay alive. You know, just, this is a, a side rabbit yeah. hole, and maybe hopefully, hopefully not too 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 in depth. But yeah. the same way you're conditioned when you walk out of class and you're looking up at the rooftops for snipers. Yeah. does your mind and body get conditioned as a staff sergeant? That if you go out with your buddies now to the bar and you guys are hanging out at night, do you feel that same need to like? I need to protect the guys that I'm with just with my buddies. We're just out here having a drink. Um, 
I think possibly in some way you feel much more, you feel like, and that's a reason of why you be, you, you do become a sergeant because you are a little bit more able to, to see things in a bigger picture, to see things more tactically, more strategically. Yeah. And so I think that was part of it is like, yeah, having a desire to like be more responsible and to have that responsibility. Yeah. Totally. I think so. All right. So back to the, back to the journey, yeah. which one did you, you chose then to take the two and then take them to extra one the hour yeah. later. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so took the first two MDMA capsules and I put my blindfold on and Attila put on some, some music that is very kind of soft, soothing, rhythmic, um, kind of like the, uh, the Ike Rose that are sung by the shamans in the Amazon during ayahuasca ceremonies. Right. Right. And this is you and how many other people? Just you know? me and Attila. Oh, okay. Guide. So he's, he's the guide. He is there to, to help ground me and to keep me, you know, keep me safe in this ceremony. Did you feel that you trusted him? You walked in, this is the first time you ever met him. You felt like I yeah. feel comfortable with this person to, to lead it's, me on this very, very important journey. Yeah. We had had one discussion on zoom okay. and then me going out there to California and it's just, him and his wife and his wife's sister they do this psychedelic work okay and um they have such a calming and loving presence about them that it is you immediately feel not only at home but safe and able to open up and be fully immersed in this experience with them they're just an incredible an incredible group of people who are doing amazing work doing yeah. amazing work um, yeah. And so took the two MDMA capsules, put my blindfold on Attila plays some music and is sitting there with me. And I think like everybody having their first experience with a drug, you know, you go like, okay, when is it going to kick in? Mm -hmm. You know, like, did I take a dud? Did I get a dud? Like, yeah. is it going to work? Maybe it just doesn't affect me. Maybe it's not hitting me. And then I was uh, going like this. And I was like, oh. We're rubbing your chest. It's so fuzzy. Mm -hmm. rubbing, and I was wearing a shirt and I was like, oh, it's so fuzzy. And then I just said to Attila, I said, oh, it's starting. And yeah. he kind of laughed a little bit like, yes, brother, it is. It's starting. <laughs> <laughs> and so then it starts that you start feeling the medicine starting to, to take yeah. effect. And I... The best way I can describe the initial portions of it is like a um, like a like a a clay modeler on working on a clay spinning wheel, right? Yeah. But I was I was molding balls of love. Now I'm wearing a blindfold, and my eyes are closed, but I can see that I'm molding and forming balls of love, just pulling this energy and this love out of the air. And I would breathe it in. I'd pull it into my face and breathe in this love. And then I'd go and I'd build another ball of love and I'd pull it down into the center of my heart. And I did that for a, like probably 10 minutes. And then it really started to hit me, right? And I was going into having the first experience. And at that point, I was about an hour in because the MDMA has about a 30 to 40 minute kind of uptake cycle. So it yeah. takes about 40 minutes for it to really hit you. And so you're not particularly feeling anything because the effect is very gradual as it kind of rises in you. It's a very gradual rise. And so that's where you're like, did I get a dud? Is it not going to work? You're just not fully feeling it. And it is so gradual that it, 
until it kind of like, oh, it's there. I'm feeling it. Mm-hmm. And so then I took the the third MDMA pill. And uh, for anybody who's wondering, it's just it it's a uh, it looks like pink rock salt, basically. Yeah, like that's kind of what like small crystals of pink rock salt, right, yeah. inside of a clear gelatin capsule, right. And so I took the third one, and then that helps boost up the next kind of as that experience goes on. Mm-hmm. The first experience I had was. I think the best way to describe it is I was, it was like I was watching a movie, but I couldn't press fast forward. Mm-hmm. I could only press pause and I could press pause by putting my hand on the ground. And it would like, I could open my eyes under the blindfold and put my hand on the ground. And that would kind of ground me to be like, Oh, that's right. I'm in Santa Cruz, California. Mm-hmm. I'm here. I'm in my body. Okay. All right. I'm all right. And I could bring my hands back to my chest and then it was like, like I said, I couldn't press fast forward, but I could hit play again. You know, like when you're watching yeah. something on your DVR and it's like fast forward is you can you can't fast forward through the commercials. Yeah, you yeah. gotta watch them, right? right? It was like, but this these experiences. And I was having this experience that I had in Iraq where I had to make a decision to shoot a child, basically. And I was in the gun turret of our truck, and this kid had followed us, like a nine, eight or nine-year-old kid had followed us for multiple blocks. And let me and clarify, was, this was a real thing that did happen. This is a real thing okay. that happened in Iraq in the city of Ouija. Yeah. Um, my driver, Noah Price, was sitting you know, in the driver's seat. I was in the gun turret. And we had pushed our dismounts out ahead of our patrol. We were the rear truck. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of normal for us as the rear truck would get attacked with hand grenades. So this kid was walking up block after block after block, getting closer and closer and closer to us until our convoy stopped. And it stopped right in the middle of Mark, like right in the middle of Northbridge, which was the street that we always got attacked on in Huija was the street called Northbridge. And the convoy stopped. And we were, if you stop for too long in a place like that, you are going to get attacked. It's just going to happen. And this kid walks up next to the truck and like Noah had called him out a couple of blocks ago. And so I had watch this kid walk up i saw him there and so i kind of popped myself even farther up out of the turret and was drawn right down on this kid and i took my rifle off safe and i was drawn right down on this kid and i can distinctly remember the image of his face right in between the reticle of my eotech he had what looked to be a um like a like if you stick a gatorade bottle in your shorts right? In one of your pockets. It's just bulging out. It's clearly there. But what it was, was a 60 millimeter mortar round that this was pretty common for them. They would take 60 millimeter mortar rounds and they would take the tail fins out, take the fuses out. They would pack those with homemade explosives. And then they would stick a uh, Russian hand grenade fuse into there and create kind of a super powered hand grenade out of a 60 millimeter mortar round. And send a kid after you. Yeah. And so I had to make this decision like, okay, if the moment that hand grenade comes out of his pocket, I'm going to kill him. And okay, take my rifle off safe, start to squeeze the slack out of my trigger. And in that moment, he looked up at me and he saw me and he saw that I had him dead to rights. And then he looked up the street and this whole time I'm screaming on my radio, like, like, Hey, get somebody back here. Like quick, 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 like send, like send guys back here. And in that moment, he looked at me, 
He looked up the street and saw all of our dismounts running towards him, looked back at me and took off running. And in that moment, this the adrenaline dump hit me and I was like, oh God, like, right. what just happened? What did you just do? And making the decision to kill a child, you know, to kill an eight-year-old kid is like, that is a heavy weight to have to bear. Yeah, So I saw this all again. And it, what I kind of described it as is it's not so scary the second time you watch a scary movie because you know what's going to happen. And so I, I knew what was going to happen. But what it was, was I had to see the lesson, right? Mm. And I had to see what happened. I had to see it through a different lens. A lens where my amygdala, my fear center of my brain, wasn't overloading me with the feelings of fear in that moment. And instead, I was able to look at that through the lens of love. And that's something that I think the MDMA experience allows you, is when you remove all of that fear and you remove all of that judgment from your, your thought process, you look at things through the lens of love. Yeah. And I saw in that moment Oh, I was a 23-year-old kid put in an unspeakably bizarre scenario, mm -hmm. being asked to make choices that are so unbearable that I would never wish that upon anyone to have to make a decision like that. Mm -hmm. Now, thank God that kid looked at me, looked and saw our dismounts and took off running. And I didn't have to shoot that kid. But I know that I made that decision. Like, I'm going to kill this kid. And I'm going to have to do it right here on the street in front of all of these people, right? And have to live with that. And in that moment of watching it again, right? And in that moment of seeing it again and looking at it through the lens of love, I saw that I was a 23-year-old kid making incredibly difficult decisions and having to make incredibly difficult decisions. But I was doing them out of love. Yeah. Out of love for my brother, out of love for my friends, out of love for myself of making these decisions. It wasn't out of hate. I didn't hate that kid. No. I didn't want to kill that kid. I wanted him to live and thank God he did. Mm -hmm. But it was out of love of protecting my brother, my driver who can't, he's driving a truck, he can't protect himself. Right. And then as that lesson and that, that lesson hits you of like, oh, you were operating out of love. I, the only way that I can describe it is like the feeling of what it must feel like and what it's going to feel like at the end of my journey, when I go and I meet God, mm -hmm. right? I got hit from the top of my head and it flowed down to my heart and then exploded out through all of my limbs, the feeling of love and of acceptance, love and acceptance, overwhelming waves of love and acceptance, love and acceptance, love and acceptance. Oh God. And it was like, that's what it is. You see these things, you learn this lesson. Yeah. And then kind of the next thing started, the next experience started. Before we go to that, is yeah. there, was there a feeling of having to forgive yourself for the decision that you could have, you might've had to make? No, I don't. There wasn't a feeling okay. of having to forgive myself because I looked okay. at it through a different lens. Okay. Because I don't, I don't see it particularly as forgiving myself because there's nothing to forgive there. Right. Is the way that I view it now. Like, yeah, for a long time, I was like, oh, I need to forgive myself for this. But in truth, I didn't need to forgive myself for anything. Mm -hmm. I was, I was doing the absolute best I could with the information and the knowledge that I had available to me at the time. 
And the knowledge and the information that I had available to me at the time was, hey, they're using kids to throw grenades at our rear trucks. I'm in the rear truck. That's a kid with a grenade. What do I think is going to happen? That kid's going to throw a hand grenade at me. Yeah, right. Right. Now, I didn't see through the lens of hate that I hated that kid. What I saw was this love and this acceptance. And what I've come to terms with is I'm not mad at myself. I'm not mad at the generals who put us there. I'm not mad at the, you know, anybody who I'm, who my actual bone, who I have a bone to pick with is who's the fucking monster who gives a nine-year-old kid a hand grenade and sends it to throw, go throw that hand grenade at the American. Now they knew that that kid was most likely going to get killed, but yeah. that was the goal. They wanted me to shoot that kid so that the whole city would erupt. Mm-hmm. The Americans killed a kid and the whole city would erupt into a ball of fire. Yeah. And it was in that moment of like, that's who I have a problem with. What kind of monster sends a child to go, you're too scared? What? You don't have the guts to throw a grenade at me yourself, so you send a child to do it? Like, yeah, at least have the guts to fight me, you know? Yeah. That's, what that's what we're here for, you know? Yeah. And so that's like, like I said, I don't think I had, it wasn't that I forgave myself, it was that I saw it through a different lens. I saw it through this lens of love. That, yeah. Being able to look at it through this lens of love, mm-hmm. right? And that was the real lesson. Is you, all of these things are done out of love. Yeah. And so it, my journey kept going on and you, you start to have more of these experiences. And it was an experience in Afghanistan of having to tell uh, a Pashtun father in, you know, we were in the, the Argandab River Valley of like, having to bring over one of my interpreters and we had to go tell this guy that like your daughter died. And I remember telling him his daughter had picked up a, I don't know, a a hand grenade or a 40 millimeter grenade or something like that. And it had detonated and having to tell him that his daughter died in this moment of like telling him that his daughter died. And uh, he just, it just like, didn't even, didn't even shake him. And he said, what about my son? And we had to say, like, your son died as well. Oh, boy. And in that moment, he collapsed. Like, yeah. Fell to pieces. And I had this moment of, like, there in Afghanistan of, like, physically standing over this man and having to be like, I told you your daughter died and you felt nothing. Mm -hmm. I tell you your son dies and you go to pieces. And it was this, like, yeah, I had this, like, moment of, cultural insensitivity of being like you don't give a shit about your daughter but you fall to pieces about your son like how can you how can you do that and i had this moment of as i saw the lesson was like he just didn't understand love in the same way that we understand love he doesn't see the value of his daughter in the same way that i can see the value and the love for my daughter and i can look at my daughter now with this immense amount of love and knowing how important it is for her to have opportunities in this world yeah, and got hit with another one of those waves of love and of acceptance, love and of acceptance. Yeah. And the journey goes on for about three or four hours of that. You're seeing these lessons. Yeah. You see this lesson and then you get hit with the waves of love and of acceptance, love and of acceptance. And And is Attila, Attila, how is he guiding you at this point? Does he chime in? Does he... It's more, he's more there just to like, you can, in the way that I kind of journey during psychedelics is like, I'm very internal. I'm, it's all going on inside of me. And then I'll like 
speak out a little bit about something that I, I kind of want to discuss later. And that's kind of how the ceremony goes. Is you have your sermon, and then after it, we sat and talked for a couple of hours just about these experiences and about these things. And talking to Attila, I would tell him just a little bit about what was happening. And then he's just there to, to kind of reassert the love that I know is already there. You know, mm-hmm. and you're loved. Everything is, is here. You're accepted. You're loved. And to have that like physical connection to hold somebody's hand for a little bit. And these like very mm-hmm. like, oh, like world shaking moments, right? Yeah, totally. And he's playing a drum a little bit to help draw you deeper into the experience and to pull you deeper into the experience. And it was one of those things of like, we medicalize things so much in our society and we've, we've removed the ability for, for our medical professionals to talk about the spirit or spiritual healing. Mm -hmm. When people like Dr. Brooke at, at, uh, at the Duquesne university, like psychology clinic, like, no, that's what they're talking about is moral wounds, spiritual mm-hmm. wounds. Dr. Ed Tick done incredible work on this. Listen, we can't continue to medicalize these things that uh, Terrence McKenna, a you know very well-known psychedelic explorer, mm-hmm. talks about every culture having archaic revivals. And that like the idea of classicism wasn't even invented or thought about until the Renaissance, mm-hmm. right? Until during the Renaissance, they looked, these cultures, these societies that were seeing the French Revolution and all of these societies collapsing had an archaic revival of human beings naturally look back to a time when things made sense. And so they looked back at the classicists, Plato and Aristotle and Epictetus, and they look back at these and they say, oh, look at all of these things, and they bring that in, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we're going through an archaic revival now in our society where we are having to talk about spirituality. And having to talk about, we cannot continue to medicalize these things that aren't medical. These wounds that men come back from combat with are spiritual wounds. They are moral wounds. They're moral injury. It's an injury to your spirit and Mm -hmm. to your soul. And if the medical community cannot admit that there is a soul, then how can they heal it? Right. Right? Yeah. And so when we, we talk about that on a different level of like, if we're going to heal heal our spirit, if we're going to heal our wounds, we have to be willing to admit that this isn't a medical issue. This Mm -hmm. is an issue of the spirit and an issue of the soul. Right. And that's what these warrior cultures in the past always had a, a, they were in touch with, they were in tune with, right. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Spartans and the Greek, you know, city states, they had these ideas of, um, of Ares, the God of war. Mm -hmm. Right. And they had these ideas of these spirits that flowed through the battlefield and the spirit of fear. And that when fear would hit some, like would take root in some soldier and he would turn and run, it would flow and wash across an entire formation. And that's how you get routes of armies. We're seeing that today with the Russian army, right? The Ukrainians have embraced the spirit of Ares, the God of war, and they are making impressive, massive gains far beyond their military capabilities. And the Russians have been overcome with the spirit of fear Mm. and they're dropping and they're running and they're leaving entire tank companies abandoned behind all of their equipment and all of their ammo, right? That is the spirit of fear flowing through these armies and causing them to retreat. Mm -hmm. 
in the same way that it happened on Greek battlefields, it's happening on Ukrainian battlefields today. And when we like try to medicalize things and we don't talk about the spirit and we don't talk about the soul, we don't get to that actual healing. Right. You know, you can't mask over these wounds with SSRIs. You can't mask over these wounds with alcohol and with cannabis and with all of these other things that we try to mask them with. Right. When the, the truth is we have to go confront these things and maybe it's too much to confront them sober. So let's use a drug that was used as a psychotherapy aid. Right. Well, let's do that. And it, I don't believe that it has to be done with a psychologist. And I don't believe that it has to be done with a psychiatrist. But I also don't believe that it has, excuse me, that it that it's just for combat vets. Mm -hmm. I also don't believe that this is just for people with trauma. Mm -hmm. I believe that we can all see a tremendous amount of healing through the proper use of psychedelics, mm -hmm. through looking back at these cultures and how they had psychedelic experiences how did our native american cultures experience psychedelics mm -hmm. right it wasn't these guys they didn't just go around and eat psychedelic mushrooms or take peyote right mm -hmm. and in the amazon they weren't just going out and drinking ayahuasca right yeah. they used these things in a ceremonial way right and that's the important thing mm -hmm. is using them in the correct set and setting with the correct intention we're not using this to like we're not using this to like have a good time on a friday night yeah, right? right we're not using this to go to a music you know to go to a uh woodstock ish a woodstock to go to a, a rave to go, we're not using it to to enhance that no we're using it for healing right right and there is an entire you know there is an entire world going on right now inside of the veteran community of veterans who are saying, listen, the VA isn't helping me and the government doesn't know what the f they're doing. Mm -hmm. We're going to heal ourselves and we're going to use psychedelics to do that. And you know what? You can't tell me, you can't tell me that the government has any place in telling me how to heal myself after they have failed so spectacularly on so many levels. They have no right, they have no reason, and they have no place to tell me what I can and cannot do to heal myself from the wounds of a war that they sent me into, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They can't, they, they have no legitimacy anymore to tell me about anything that I can do to heal myself. And when we're talking about the spirit, that's where we get into the ideas of religious freedom, right? right? Of who can tell me that that was not a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, as evidenced by what is this about an eight hour session uh, it's probably about four or five total. Four or five. At, does the effects of the MDMA last for that amount of time? And then you talk for an extra amount of time or in total, you're probably about so, five or six hours. So the effects of the MDMA are probably, I'd say, apparent for about two days. Mm, the effects okay. of the amygdala and the fear centers being very shut down and closed off are apparent for a couple of days after you feel kind of in the glow of MDMA is kind of the way it's described. You feel it in yeah. the globe, the MDMA. But the real like psychedelic experience is about three hours, three or okay. four hours. Gotcha. Um, and so as the MDMA started to kind of wane, the last experience I had was this experience of in Afghanistan, we were shooting um, mortar illumination rounds. Mm -hmm. And we were 
sitting there and waiting for an ANA platoon to ambush a Taliban squad on a known pathway that they had been moving fighters into this valley. And so we like overwatched this ambush and we watched our Afghan brothers kill like about a dozen Taliban fighters. And we were firing illumination rounds over it and watching this happen. Like mm -hmm. as they came into the kill zone, we launched our first illumination round and it cracked over them. And the whole battlefield got, you know, just light spreads out over the battlefield. And then the ANA opened up on them and just massacred this Taliban squad. And watching that and being the one that provided light to this battlefield was a very strange experience of like providing what the Afghans needed to kill the Taliban and sitting there and watching it was like a very, um, it's a traumatic experience to watch other human beings die and be torn apart. You know, there's a, I had a, an experience in Afghanistan of watching an RPG team like disappear because they got hit by an SPG nine that the Afghan army fired at them. And I was, you know, setting my mortar up to shoot at them and to kill those guys myself. And then I looked across the Valley and saw this Afghan soldier let loose with an SPG nine, which is a, uh, a Russian recoilless rifle. And it was a direct hit. And it was watching like three people cease to exist and being like shocked in that moment of like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. It's a traumatic experience to just to see. You're not, you're not conditioned for that. No. It's not normal to see that. Right. And in this experience of watching these Afghans, you know, massacre this Taliban squad, that's where it started to go into kind of a psychedelic of it wasn't me just experiencing watching things that had already happened. I saw the Afghans turn into lions, mm -hmm. start to tear apart Taliban. And I said to Attila, oh, my Afghan lions. And that was something that for me, like the lion of Panjshir is, mm -hmm. you know, Ahmed Shah Massoud is such a hero to Afghan freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a hero to a lot of, a lot of, american soldiers because that was the he was the first he was the original anti-taliban yeah you know right his northern alliance is, right yeah northern alliance and ahmed shah massoud's son is still carrying on that battle against the taliban you know mm -hmm. and these lions these afghan lions are still carrying on that fight and i think one day someday maybe i pray to god that i'll be able to go back to afghanistan you know and to go up into the panjshir valley and to meet these Afghan lions again, that, that I had so much respect for on the battlefield. I had so much respect for the Afghan army because they are fearless and they fight like lions. Yeah. And so I had this experience of watching these Afghans turn into lions and attack them. And then I kind of started to, to drift off into a different path. And I saw myself, and this is something that is, you know, very, I think, apparent for a lot of people in the psychedelic experiences, you see pictures of things and it's like a picture tells a thousand words, right? Yeah. You can see an image and you know exactly the entire history of that image. And I saw myself walking and I was wearing my armor and my rifleman's kit from Afghanistan. And I saw that like in this moment, I was at a fork in the road, right? And I could see that I had been on a war path for a dozen years, right? And that I, as I'm thinking, I was like, oh, wow, that I actually been about a dozen years since I, I went to a, 
to Iraq. Like, oh, wow, I have been on a war path for a dozen years. And the Robert Frost poem about, you know, two roads, birds in a yellow wood, and I chose the one less, and it's made all the difference in my life, right? That's been a a very meaningful poem to me in a lot of moments in my life because I haven't chosen the the normal, the prescribed path. Like I decided to like, uh, all of my friends are going to college. I'm going to drop out and join the army and I'm going to join the infantry. And making a decision of like, oh, I, I did my time in Iraq, but I want to lead men in combat. I want to lead men in combat. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to go down the path of being a sergeant and go to Afghanistan and lead men in combat. And I saw myself at this diversion in the road. And I could look down the path to the left. And what I saw was, I saw old men. I saw veterans of the first and the second world wars, Korea and Vietnam and desert storm and then our conflicts. Mm -hmm. And they were men that had all aged kind of at the, the point of where they were at the, the first world war veterans and the second world war veterans were very old men and Korean war were very old men. The Vietnam era were in their seventies and the desert storm guys are in their fifties. And it was guys my age who were still in their uniforms from Iraq and Afghanistan. And they were, you know, the videos of the old, the, the, they have like the 80 year old paratroopers and they have them dressed up in the, mm -hmm. they got him in his 82nd airborne and he's singing like blood upon the risers. Yeah. yeah. It was like that, but they were wearing their combat gear, mm -hmm. right? They were wearing their rifleman's kit, but they were playing war like children. Mm. And that to me was this thing of like, oh, they're, they're trying to recapture this lost moment. They're mm. trying to live in this time that is no more. They're stuck in this trying to, to live still as if they're at war, Yeah. right? And I saw all of them in their uniforms, men from Vietnam in their web gear, still playing war like children. And it was like, oh, they haven't moved on. Yeah. They haven't made a decision to let go of the war, to leave behind their armor and their battle gear and to leave that behind and to move forward. And then I looked down the other path, mm -hmm. right? And it was this pathway that I, um, the pathway to the left with all the old veterans playing war in their, in their gear and their equipment was like dark and gloomy, Yeah, you know? And this path to the right was full of sunshine and full of happiness and full of love. And I kind of made that decision of like, I'm going to choose the path of healing. I'm going to step off of the war path. I'm going to walk down this path of healing. And that's when like the final lesson hit me, right? And it was like this, like the voice of God talking down to me and saying, you are a warrior now on a healing journey. And it was like, oh, that's right. I'm still a warrior. I've always been a warrior. You know, I've always been a warrior. I'm a warrior on a healing path now. Right. I'm no longer a warrior who is, feeling self-determined by the conflict in which I experienced mm -hmm. the fights that I was in. I'm no longer bound by this great national failure that I've experienced and felt so deeply, mm -hmm. much more deeply than I think a lot of people in so our like, nation who didn't go fight in yeah. Afghanistan, who didn't serve in the military. Those of us who went there and those of us who fought in Afghanistan felt that as a tremendous 
national failure. And in those moments, I understood what those Vietnam vets must have felt watching those helicopters leave Saigon for the last time. Yeah. I'm saying this great national failure and our society, our 24-hour news cycle world, just, we lost 13 Americans and our, uh, you know, our commander-in-chief, our administration just moved on like it was nothing, like it had never happened. And Jill Biden said something a couple of days ago that to me was like, how ignorant of you to say something like that because you do not understand. She said, you know, our nation hasn't been at war for, you know, a couple of years now. It's like, did you just forget what your husband did in Afghanistan? Did you forget that quickly? Within a year of the 13 men and women who gave their lives trying desperately to get people to safety. Right. They gave up their lives trying to get Afghan refugees through a terrible situation and to the opportunity to maybe make it to freedom. Did you forget that quickly? Right. And that's the society that we live in, that we have so quickly forgotten about the sacrifices that we made and the mistakes that we as a nation made especially in Afghanistan, that this national failure felt so much deeper to us than it seemed like for everybody else, because everybody else just kind of moved on. Yeah. But for us, it was like, wow. Never been embarrassed, you know, mm -hmm. of my nation. But in those moments of watching that fail, I was embarrassed and I was embarrassed to have been an Afghan veteran, to have gone and fought and to say like, for what? Right. So you people can give it up just like that? Mm -hmm. And in those moments of now choosing this healing path was like, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Love and acceptance will allow those things to wash over us and we'll leave all of that behind. Knowing now what we know and to say that the next time you idiots try to send young American boys and girls to go die over something that you can't explain, I'll be the first one to say no. You're not going to do this. Send your sons and daughters. Send the sons and daughters of senators to go die. Don't send them to go, you know, be a, uh, an accountant on some base. Send them to go like the... Uh, be the rear truck. Yeah. No, send them like, a, like the general, mm -hmm. that Marine general. It was the, um, I believe he was the national security, one of the national security advisors during the... Um, the Trump administration, who was a four-star Marine general. And when his son said, dad, I want to be a Marine infantry officer. He didn't say, nah, buddy, no, 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 no. You're going to go, you're going to go be a uh, JAG officer, or you're going to go be a finance guy. You're going to go. No, he said, okay, son, you want to go be an infantry officer. I'll send you to Helmand. I'll send you to Afghanistan and I'll give you a platoon to go lead in combat. And his son went and died in Afghanistan. And that's what, for me, it's like, Hey, our sons and daughters, my brothers, my friends are going to die in these wars. Not the sons and daughters of these senators, not these politicians who make these decisions and no more. You're not going to hear support from me. And at the start of this war in Ukraine, I said, no American boys need to go die in Slavic civil wars. We can support them. We can give them weapons, but we don't need to be sending American troops to go die in some Ukrainian field for what? Something that 
95% of the American people can't tell you what that war is over, nor do they even understand that there was a war going on there since 2014. Right. That, that conflict in the Donbass had been a sniper and artillery war for eight years. Mm -hmm. Those of us who had been watching what's going on in warfare in the world knew this is a, a slow simmering war that's eventually going to break out. Right. But that wasn't talked about. Mm -hmm. And these experiences of seeing it differently now, and seeing these experiences of war and knowing like, oh, I can move forward on a healing journey. It's like it, people talk about the perspective shift with psychedelics. And I think that that's something that is incredibly apparent to me was the perspective shift that I saw in these experiences. My perspective of this trauma, of these wars, of these experiences had shifted so greatly to be like, oh, that's right. You are a warrior. You continue to carry that on forward. It's how do you carry that forward? Right. You know, in Native American cultures, it wasn't just you know, the young men that went off to war, it was also the entire tribe of the warriors, mm -hmm. entire warrior societies. But those warrior societies weren't just made up of like 24-year-old kids. It was all of the warriors that had stacked on top of that. Right. Up into these guys in their 70s, like, yeah, those, those elders in the tribe in their 40s and 50s weren't going out and going to war, but they were providing the experience and the healing to our, to their, you know, young warriors when they returned home yeah. it's like that's how i can move forward as a warrior i don't need to like i said play war pretend that i'm still at war and i see that a lot on like youtube is filled with you know cool guys doing cool guy shit and showing off their guns and this new piece of gear as if gear does anything for you if you don't know what you're doing right you know that's a lesson you learn very quickly in the infantry like your gear matters about like 10%, you know, it's about 10% yeah. is your gear. The rest of it is your training. Yeah. And when I see these guys, like, you know, I think during a lot of the, our societal struggles that I've seen, and you see guys wearing, carrying their rifle in public and wearing body armor, but they weigh 300 pounds. Like, yeah, dude, you're just a loot box for somebody who hits you. Like, <laughs> If you can't run, if you don't have cardio, you're dead. Like you're going to get killed at the start of that battle and somebody's going to take all your cool guy shit and they're going to wear it themselves. Yeah. And this idea people have of like, oh, if I have the cool guy gear and the cool guy shit and the cool guy gun, then I'll be for whenever the war is like, spend your money on training, spend your money on cardio because yeah. that's what's going to keep you alive. But it's a consumerist warfare culture, right. you know, where people want to consume and they want to make it part of their identity to to be this and to have that stuff and it's the image of what it's like yes. i can i can play the part yes but how do you yeah um did you feel in the days and weeks months after doing this session yeah uh as you said you think you can be healed from ptsd the other side of that is ptsd kind of is with you and you continue the work like if you don't continue the work, some of those wounds could be reopened, things like yeah. that. Did you feel like those sessions um, healed you or do you feel like you had to in some way continue on with this? You found this new perspective. Yeah. How did it develop and evolve? I think it is the perspective shift and the knowledge of healing, knowing that I could, hey, I could do a lot of healing with counseling, 
seeing this other opportunity for healing mm -hmm. and then working to embody through the next two sessions, right? The next mm -hmm. two MDMA sessions where the, the second one was, I ended up having to have knee surgery. So I had to postpone my second one until May 13th. Mm -hmm. May 14th is a day that my battalion lost four men that were killed and 13 men were wounded on that day. Afghanistan or Iraq? In Afghanistan. So you were in charge of them? No, no, no. Oh, I was... Okay. Yeah, this was in our battalion. This was Alpha you. Company, 3rd Battalion, 41st Infantry. Um, and we lost four guys killed and 13 or so wounded. And so that date, May 14th, holds a lot of like... It's a mournful day for us. We, we all feel that day. Yeah. And so that was the day after my second session. And after that second session, I was really, I, I grappled in that session with attachment, mm -hmm. with attachment to physical things, attachment to my phone, attachment to things that I had from my past and attachment to that date, mm -hmm. right? I have this day, I only have 365 days a year, 366 if we're lucky, right? I'm not going to spend another one of them being miserable and being sad. And I had spent in the years after like, oh, I'd get, you know, like a lot of guys get blind drunk on that day and mm -hmm. cry and be mournful. And I don't, I don't look down on anybody for doing that. If that's the way that they're feeling and that they believe that in that moment, that's what they need to do to confront the sadness of that day. Mm -hmm. But I decided that like a couple of years ago, I would go down to, I'd go down to Gettysburg on the 14th and just walk around a battlefield mm -hmm. and being around, I go over to the, uh, I'd go over to the cemetery and I've always found, uh, I've always walked around and found the, the grave of an unknown soldier. Mm -hmm. I just sit down next to that grave and, and, and say to that soldier, like, you're not forgotten. I'm still here. Your brothers are still here. We haven't forgotten about you. And we do so respect the sacrifice that you have given to our nation. Mm -hmm. so I kind of after that second session had this experience of like looking at that day of May 14th through the lens of love and through the lens of oh god these men loved each other so much that they were willing to die and willing to sacrifice themselves over and over and over walking into a minefield to save each other and it is the greatest act of love that I have ever seen is to know and to have this experience of my brothers in Alpha Company over and over and over walked themselves into a minefield to save each other, to save each other's lives. Mm -hmm. That's the greatest act of love that I can imagine. It's the greatest act of love that I can imagine. And to look at that day through that lens, that's a massive perspective shift. It's sad and it's mournful that young men died in a conflict that we can't particularly explain the reasons for, especially not now. Mm -hmm. But to know that the act of love and the feeling of love was so deep inside of them that they were willing to make those sacrifices changes the way that I look at that day. And it yeah. changes the way that I'll experience that day for the rest of my life. And it changes the way that my daughter will experience that day. My daughter won't experience her father getting blind drunk one day out of the year and not being able to explain to her what happened. Right. 
right? That's not going to be the experience my daughter's going to have. My daughter will be able to have an experience of knowing what it is and why men do things, why men make heroic actions in combat. Because they love each other. Because they have such deep, profound love for their brother that they're willing to sacrifice themselves. They're willing to give their limbs and their lives for their brothers. She'll be able to know that in a different way that I don't think would have been available to me had I not had these MDMA sessions, had I not had the experience of going and doing these MDMA ceremonies and having this perspective shift. And that to me is like worth every penny, worth totally. every dollar I paid for it, you know? So we talked just a touch earlier about, you're obviously very well-read, a historian in your own <laughs> right, um, you know, and, and understanding a lot of this before you went into it. Yeah. But to the veterans who who may just, I just heard about this and I just found this podcast. Yeah. Like, what, what should I know and why should I do this? Yeah, I think the first place I would start is Netflix has a great short, like a couple shows called uh, How to Change Your Mind. Mm -hmm. And there was a book that you can also read by Michael Pollan where he talks about, hey, these new modalities of healing using psychedelics, there's science behind it. It's, it's not guys taking a tab of LSD at Woodstock and, you know, yeah. there's, there, there, there is an industry being built around this, right? Mm -hmm. Terrence McKenna once said, we have to, we have to figure out how to make money while saving the world, because that's the only way it'll exist in a capitalist society. Mm, yeah. How do you make money saving the world? Mm -hmm. And that's part of, there's going to be an industry built around these psychedelic healing centers. And there's too much evidence now to, to stop it, you know? And that something is, Check out How to Change Your Mind on Netflix. There's one on psilocybin, There's one which is magic mushrooms. There's one on MDMA, which is, you know, the what I used. Mm -hmm. There's one on LSD, people using LSD for therapy. And there's one on uh, peyote, mescaline, and using that in the, that is much more the um, Native American ceremony. And San Pedro cactus as well, which... You can go down to your uh, local Lowe's and you can buy San Pedro cactus. That's the crazy thing about it. You get a big enough one and you dice it all up, cook it down and eat it. You will have a transformative psychedelic experience, you know, oh, wow. something that you can buy at the, uh, something you can buy at the local Lowe's. Mm -hmm. So that's a good place to start. I think looking at the one on MDMA and looking at the one on psilocybin, because the psilocybin one, they talk about the Johns Hopkins psilocybin studies where Johns Hopkins was giving and I think they still do, they give psilocybin to people with terminal diagnosis, of cancer, Parkinson's, things like that. And the immense alleviation of the fear of death that mm. comes through a single psilocybin experience. Yeah. And that is transformative in its own right of how do you take somebody who is going to die? I mean, I hate to break it to the listeners, Sean, but we're all going to die. You know, hey, if you thought you were going to live forever, like I hate to break it to you, you're going to die. And you're going to have to approach that at some point. Mm -hmm. And if you approach your mortality with a view of like, what an incredible ride it's been, and I'm ready for the next portion of it, well, then that's how the psilocybin work that, that Johns Hopkins did on people whose lives were ending early, yeah. you know? And um, so they did, they, they do a couple of interviews with people like that. And then they do interviews with, with people in the MDMA trials, the people who've done 
MDMA therapy and the incredible results that these people have seen. And, you know, anecdotal evidence is anecdotal, but how many anecdotes do you need to be statistical? Because everybody that I've talked to that's undergone MDMA therapy has seen a tremendous shift in their life through three sessions. Right. You know, what is the other modalities of healing in our society that have been talked about, right? We're talking about, oh, I, I take what an SSRI every day for the rest of my life. The second most prescribed medication in America is an antipsychotic drug that's used to boost the production of SSRIs. Mm -hmm. You have children on SSRIs, children on antipsychotics. Right. We're living in a wounded culture, in a wounded society, and we have to move past this idea of if I take a pill and I take it every day, it's going to solve my problems. Like, no, 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 no. The thing with the MDMA therapy is, is it's not the MDMA that does the healing. You see very clearly inside of yourself, all of the healing, all of everything I need is inside of me. It's inside of my heart. It's inside of me if I continue to work towards this healing path. Mm -hmm. I continue to work towards being this more evolved, this more conscious version of myself. It's all inside of me. And so those, those, those shows on Netflix are a great start. And then to get a real deeper dive into the, um, to the actual science of it mm -hmm. would be to, to listen to Rick Doblin, uh, D-O-B-I-L-N, D-O-B-L-A-N, Rick mm -hmm. Doblin, would be to listen to his interviews with Joe Rogan. If you go onto Spotify, you can find them. He, Rick Doblin has also done a TED Talk. It's a little like 15, 12, 15 minute talk that he did talking about this and kind of goes through how he got the FDA to admit that this is a breakthrough therapy, right? And I think looking at those, if you're a veteran and you're interested in these kind of treatments and in this kind of healing, that's, look at that because that'll provide you all of the science and all of the statistics that you need. Yeah. If hearing other veterans talk about it isn't enough, if you're, you say like, oh, this dude's just blowing smoke and he's, you know, putting on a show, like I'm not. But if you believe, sure, there's also a ton of science and a ton of statistics and a ton of studies that you can look at. It got the F, they got the FDA to admit this is a breakthrough therapy. So it's right. it's not just me. I'm not the only guy talking about this. That, well, this is what our previous guest, who was uh, you know the Top Gun pilot, who who talked about um, it, it talked about this. He he was so passionate about what his experience was and was like, I'm here telling you this worked. This worked for me. It can work for many other people. Um, don't write it off just because it's psychedelic healing and think that it's like a Woodstock thing. Like, you know, there is a, 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 a sequence of events that you go through, a ceremony you go through. This is all well put together and well organized. So, yeah. 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 And so that for me is like this, in my third MDMA ceremony, I, I really saw, and that was, I think, a very cool thing about having three ceremonies is each one was different. The first one was very much about me encountering these very traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. These very like moral wounds, these ego shaking moments of like, who are you? If you're willing to kill a child, are you a monster? You are a monster. You made that decision. Having to encounter all of these things, the, the cultural interplay between Western society and the Pashtun culture, you know, of like feeling like in that moment of not feeling sad for that man that just lost his children, but feeling very angry, you know, and of of being the one to provide light over a battlefield that ended up in the death of 12 Taliban fighters. Like those are still human beings. You know, those are still human beings and they still 
while they may have been pushed down the wrong path by their society and by their culture, they're still human beings and they're still worthy and deserving of love. And my second one being very much about attachment and about all of this attachment in my life. And the third ceremony for me was very much about what the future looks like and where is the future going to take me and what are the opportunities available for me? And I think very much in the future, I will be working with veterans doing psychedelic healing because I believe so strongly in the feeling of like, as a warrior, what is the next thing? And I, I believe that working with veterans in this psychedelic healing and, you know, in some ways of like, you know, being a warrior shaman, but being able to walk with and to talk with other veterans about the experience of healing and to help expose them to the ideas of being able to heal and being able to use psychedelics to heal because sometimes it takes having heard somebody who's been through the same things and have gone through the same things and have seen combat of telling you, no, there is a healing here. There is healing. Right. Being able to be the one that, that provides that, I think is something that for me will be a pathway for me in the future. Mm -hmm. But I think that looking at those and, and listening to interviews and listening to the people with who have undergone these treatments, who have undergone these ceremonies, look at them with curiosity. And instead of judgment, try to remove your judgment from it. Because, you know, if you haven't had a psychedelic experience or you haven't had a psychedelic experience in a ceremonial setting, you don't know what we've experienced. You don't know. And it's the same way that, you know, you know, veterans try to get across their experiences and you guys do such a great job of helping to helping to connect our culture with the experience and the sacrifices of our veterans what it is that we experienced what it is that we that we did and what it is that we saw and trying to get that across to people and not just the way of, you wouldn't get it man you weren't there it's like it is impossible to put into words the enormity of a psychedelic experience and specifically the enormity of a healing ceremony and how you walk away from that with this massively shifted perspective of going, I'm still who I am, but I have, it's like you go into the eye doctor, one or two, two or three, three or four. Oh, back to three. It's like, oh, well, this dude just went like click and it's x-ray perfect vision. I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> what a new perspective, yeah. you know? And for me to be able to say like, it was three MDMA ceremonies. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I'll ever need to take. That was beginning my next question. Do you feel like you have to go through another another ceremony? No, I'm going to do an ayahuasca ceremony in October. I'm very excited for that. Mm -hmm. For that being this, you know, very, very intense psychedelic experience. And I'll come on and talk to you about that whenever I get back from that, if you'd like. Definitely. Talk about that. There's a lot of veterans now doing things like ayahuasca, mm -hmm. doing things like ibogaine therapy. Dakota Meyer has been very open about using ibogaine therapy in Mexico yeah, and then using 5-MeO-DMT after it. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. how these psychedelics, when used in the proper set and used in a ceremonial healing way, are incredibly incredibly beneficial and are massively life-changing for people like Dakota Meyer who had struggled mightily mightily with his experiences in combat you know the guy won a medal of honor and he feels like he failed he's been given this 
ultimate award by our society and feels like he failed because he didn't save his team. Right. You know, and for him to have an experience of saying like, oh, I was able to see all of the perspective shift of that day, you know? And I think that that's the thing to get across to people is, hey, I was a lot like a lot of people when I heard people talk. I was, you know, straight-laced sergeant in the army, you know? Maybe not straight-laced, but, you know, I like to go out and drink with my buddies on the weekend, just like every other infantryman. But it was very much like, oh, these people talking about expanding their consciousness and expanding their mind. Like, hippies. I don't know. Yeah. Until you experience it. Until you experience it. And it is the absolute, yep, my consciousness was expanded. The ability for me to be aware of myself, mm-hmm. to be aware of my own patterns, to be aware of my own thought patterns and my own processes, just in in in, in how I connect in my relationship with my wife. I was going to, again, you're reading my mind. My next question would be like, a lot of people say, well, my wife, my daughter, my dad, you know, they all noticed a change in me. Yeah. And how did they, how did your wife, like, what did she say after you came back? Was she like, this is a brand new Adam or, you know. Like how- a changed man. Yeah. A changed man. And one thing that I've very, like, been very apparent to me in, just like every married couple, we have fights and we have arguments, you know. One of the things that for me was very apparent to me was I have the, you know, I try to avoid, try to put like stay away from the fight. But then once it's there, it's like my wife calls it, I go into attack mode. And it's yeah. like, I'm very like, and that to me is like, a, that's the PTSD response of trying to avoid conflict. But when it's here, like, hey, anybody will tell you when you get ambushed, the first thing that you try to do is gain fire superiority. You put as much lead out towards the enemy as possible. And that to me is how I would operate in a fight with my wife of like, well, here we go. And bang, 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 bang. Throwing as much lead back as I possibly could, right? Yeah. Well, now I am much more able to see the pattern building. And even if I like, hey, I'm bang, I'm taking a shot at you. It's like, okay, I can see that pattern. I can recognize that as a pattern in a pathway that I don't want to go down. And I would much rather say, Alex, I'm sorry. I apologize for how I responded. In the moment, I'm not willing to talk about that. I'm not open to talk about that. I'm not able to have this conversation right now. I love you. We can talk about this tomorrow. We can talk about this next week. And that to me has been something that she's also noticed and also said of like your ability to de-escalate a conflict, which could turn into, you know, us arguing and fighting and then like not talking to each other for a couple of days and being like very distant is like, doesn't really happen anymore. Because I'm able to like switch out of that attack mode and go, I can see that I'm going into the attack mode and I don't want to go into attack mode. I want to go into loving and caring for my wife, loving and caring for my daughter. Yeah. And that to me is this experience of like, um, I didn't want to be the angry veteran. I didn't want to be that man in my daughter's life because I didn't want her to grow up with an angry father, you know? And I never had that experience. My dad is one of the most loving and kind human beings imaginable. But I had seen friends who had angry fathers, you know, and I know guys who, guys that I served with whose fathers were alcoholics or were angry or were violent. Right. And that to me was like, 
I'm not going to be that angry veteran. Yeah. I'm going to be the most loving, kind, and gentle human being that I possibly can. Mm -hmm. And inside of that is the knowledge of being a warrior, of like knowing what you are capable of. I think very, very few people are have an understanding of the capability for violence they hold inside of them. But yeah, men who have been in combat have a very real life experience of, oh, I'm capable of violence, capable of damage, right. you know? Mm -hmm. And wanting to say, oh, in my life, I'm not going to be that angry veteran. I'm not going to yell at my daughter. I'm not going to do that. I'm right. going to choose a different pathway forward as being for me like a profound and life-shifting, life-changing experience. Probably the biggest lesson out of it. Not only the perspective change on your experiences, the the moral injuries, all of it, but being able to be given a choice now. Being able to catch and see patterns because yeah. that's what they are in your brain and they're patterns. And that's something that people, it um, MDMA and, and psilocybin, um, one of the things that I've been doing I think is because I still have patterns where I, I get into depressive patterns and I get into down moments. And one of the things that I've found is for me, microdosing of psilocybin has been incredibly helpful in lifting me out of depressions and lifting me out of down periods. And in the way that psilocybin works, psilocybin helps to create new neural pathways in your brain. And it helps you to recognize in a way of like, I see that neural, I see that pathway in my brain. It's grooved in there, right? Yeah. It's in there, right. but psilocybin helps to rewire your brain and to build new neural pathways around problems. Hmm. And I can, you know, you can say like, oh, I can feel it. I can see it. Like, no, I can, I can look at things in a different way. I can see a pattern arising and see it as just that it's a pattern. And I can make a decision in the moment of following down that pattern, or I can make a decision to let's find a new solution to this. Because oftentimes anger is your response. The cut me off in traffic, right? right? Instead of going like, I in this moment could get angry and I could get frustrated and I could shake my steering wheel and I could ruin the rest of my day over somebody cutting me off. Or I could say, I guess they got somewhere real important to be. Right. Hey, that's all right. Fine. Cool. Go ahead. I'm going to go about my day and I'm going to live here in this joyful world. Nobody's shooting at me. Nothing's blowing up. I get to live this wonderful life. And isn't that a better way to go about it? Yeah. Than to right. being triggered and sent down a pathway of anger and frustration and going, you know? Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people that meditate say that about themselves. Of through deep meditation work, you are able to notice and to see patterns in your life and go, I don't want to go down that pattern. Right. Go down this path. I want to go down this pathway instead. So interesting. Um, well, Adam, this has been uh, very thorough and, and it exceptionally yeah. thorough uh, because I think that anybody who might be looking to, to use this, this modality, uh, this is a great way for them to be, ex uh, to be exposed to it uh, through what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so I really want to thank you for, for sharing and being, you know, being yourself and being honest about what all this is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's something for me that out of that third MDMA session was like, I need to be more vocal about this. Mm -hmm. I need to talk about this more openly. And I don't particularly care what anyone thinks about it. I don't care if you have judgment over me using MDMA and psychedelics to heal myself, because would you rather, would you rather I be a damaged veteran who cannot move past my experiences? 
or would you rather I be the best father possible for my daughter? If I'm asking anyone else that question, I would say to them, I would much rather, I would much rather you be a veteran who is healed from your wounds and is able to be the best husband, the best father, the best citizen possible, rather than feeling damaged or feeling broken or feeling like you have been determined by this national failure, whatever it is, right. you know? And for everybody out there, veteran or not, I don't believe that MDMA therapy is just for people with PTSD. Mm -hmm. I think we can all see a massive benefit from having just one of these experiences in your life. Mm -hmm. Just one experience in your life where you are able to see through a new lens and through a new perspective. And that to me is like, we're going to be moving into a culture, hopefully, where we talk about psychedelics more openly and we talk about the benefits of them. And we talk about how this isn't just for guys with PTSD. Right. This is for everybody can benefit from the proper usage of these. I'm not saying go take MDMA and do, like, no, do this through a healing, a actual healing procedural through the yeah. people who are actually doing this work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I was going to say, what, do you have any final words? But I think that that sums it up perfectly. Um, and to our listeners, if you're interested in this, we're going to have more uh, links into the description. Um, yep. I'm happy to connect any of our listeners with Adam, if, if you're okay yeah. with that, Adam, to like, you know, let them know all about where, where you, they need to go. Yeah. Um, we'll make sure to get the word out, but uh, also like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube, and you can connect with me at Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Uh, Adam, I want to thank you so much for your time uh, today. Well, thank I, you guys. Thank you so much. Sean. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much for allowing me to speak about this and allowing me to share this, this healing that I've seen with with other veterans and and with other the people out there listening because it's it's going to be incumbent upon us as citizens to say to our representatives and to say to our government like hey stop making this stop fighting the lost drug war especially when it comes to things like this because you're fighting a losing battle and you're you're doing harm you are doing more harm than good when you're trying to illegal like make this impossible to access you're you're doing more harm than good and it's incumbent upon us to say to our representatives, like, it's time to change. It's time well, to certainly change. become more a part of the social consciousness. People understand and hear more about it, especially from your very positive experience. I think that, you know, it'll hopefully continue to, to gain root. Cool. But, all right. Uh, and for our listeners, we'll see you on another episode of The Scuttlebutt. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D&D &D Auto Salvage. Dot com. Uh, thank you so much to D&D. &D. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. 
They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.